Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today. It is our desire at Faith to help you connect, grow, and go in your walk with God. We hope you're encouraged by this message from Pastor Steve. And if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the sixth chapter, Matthew chapter six, and hold your space there uh, because it's going to take us a minute to get to that spot, but eventually that's where we're going to land today and talk about a few things. But um, uh, I want to start with a, a brief story here this morning. And it's one that is perhaps familiar to the most of you if you're any bit of a history student, even you don't necessarily have to be a, a real history buff to be a, uh, acquainted with the story that I'm going to share. But uh, in 1912, Philip Franklin, who then served as the vice president of the White Star Line, famously said of the company's newest luxury cruise liner before its fateful maiden voyage, there is no danger that Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable, Franklin says, and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by its passengers. At 11.40 p.m. on the night of April 12, 1912, the ship's lookout spotted an iceberg. And the ship's officers were notified and then in an ill-fated attempt was made to miss the iceberg. And you know the rest of the story that the ship indeed did strike that iceberg with a glancing blow. And by 2.15 a.m., the ship, two and a half hours later, was fully submerged. The unsinkable had sank, the unstoppable was stopped, taking 1,500 souls approximately to a watery grave. And you may ask this morning and say, well, Pastor, what does the sinking of a ship 109 years ago have to do with the church today? And I think the point here is that many people think that the obvious reason for the ship's sinking was its contact with an external obstacle. Something from the outside that intruded and made its way to the inside seems to be the obvious answer. And I don't want to bore you with the details because we know the story. We've kinda, we're a soundbite generation and we hear the thing. We, we heard it in history class. The, the ship struck the iceberg. It, it started taking on water and eventually it broke up and it sank and a lot of people died. The end and we move on. But over the years, closer examinations, and I won't bore you with the details, but suffice to say further studies have revealed that there were a number of design flaws that were found in the construction of the ship that accounted for its inability to sustain the glancing impact of an iceberg. And so monumental was this tragedy and the ensuing discoveries that many advancements in the designs of ships have been made that are used still in the manufacturing of ships today. But one thing I do want to say about the discoveries that were made after this terrible tragedy is this. It has been discovered that the reinforced steel that was used in the building of this ship's hull, though it may have been the most advanced steel for its day 
metallurgical and mechanical tests have then since showed that the iron and the steel that was used in the constructing of this, of this ship's hull actually in those sub-freezing waters, in that freezing cold water, actually became brittle. So it wasn't simply that it contacted an external force that caused that. It was, part in due to, uh, it was due in part to the inferior materials with which the ship was constructed that caused its inability to be able to withstand the impact. And in its state of brittleness, rivets began to pop, the hull began to open, it began to take on the water. But the point is that it, it proves that it was not merely the pressure brought by an external force that caused this great ship to sink and break up, but rather the inferiority of its construction to withstand the impact. And I want to submit to you, church, that today we are traversing the seas of life and there are many who are tossed violently and often broken up and shipwrecked because they have constructed for themselves a vessel of faith that is made of materials that are inferior at best and oftentimes fragile. Paul wrote to his young protege Timothy and he says these words this charge I commit to you son Timothy according to the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you may wage good warfare having faith and a good conscience which some have rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck there's a prophecy Paul wrote to Timothy and said Timothy you need to live in good faith concerning the prophecy that has been spoken over your life. The sincere word of the Lord that has been spoken over you. You need to walk, you need to, you need to live and have your being and order your steps according to the prophetic word that has been rendered over your life because there are a lot of people who have ignored the word of the Lord over their lives and in doing so, they have shipwrecked themselves. Now, let me preface my next statement by saying this. I believe in the prophetic gifts. I have been the recipient of such words that confirmed what the Lord was speaking to my heart and it has been an invaluable part of my life. Now, on the other hand, I would say that what I'm saying is by no means an endorsement of every prophetic word that you hear. The word also says to test the spirits to see whether they are from the Lord or not. And I can promise you if it doesn't align with the word of the Lord, the, the revealed word of God as it is given to us in the scripture, then it's not from God. That is the litmus test, the number one of understanding whether what you're hearing is of the Lord or not. And, and when I talk about prophecy this morning, I'm not necessarily talking about what you've heard someone say at some point that may or may not have anything to do with Scripture, but it sounded exciting and it touched you and it, it enticed you. I'm talking about I'm speaking expressly with regard to the revealed Word of the Lord, the Holy Bible, the book that expounds for us kingdom principles and gives a blueprint for faith-filled and godly living. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about prophecy. 
I'm talking about this word. This word. This word has been rendered and issued over your life by the Holy Spirit. As, as holy men of old have been moved of the Spirit, they have written a word that was relevant in the hour that it was written, and it's just as relevant for you today. It's not subject to consequence or circumstance. It is forever settled in heaven, and it'll be just as true tomorrow as it was today. Should the Lord tarry his coming, it'll be just as relevant ten years from now as it is right now. So I'm talking about the, the prophecy of Scripture here when, when we're talking about this in particular. And Paul said to Timothy, you have a prophecy over your life. Keep fighting the good fight of faith in accordance with that word. Because some have rejected it and they've suffered a shipwreck of faith. Now, one way that many have shipwrecked their faith is by constructing for themselves a system of beliefs and living that mingles in the name of Jesus, that pays homage to the God of heaven, but ultimately it ignores the principles of the kingdom and operates according to our own desires, our own logic. We have built a system of life based on Christianisms and traditions that we've heard that honestly are counter to the truth of Scripture and the prophecy that's been revealed over our lives. And when the icebergs of life strike, we want to blame it on the exterior factors for the gaping holes that come in our lives and refuse to accept responsibility for the error of our own thinking. But the truth is that we're often so easily shaken because we founded our lives according to our own will and we continually seek God's blessing upon it. Oh, come on. How many of you have become frustrated because you've prayed and rather than asking God what would you have me do, you prayed and said, God, here's what I need you to do. Here's what I want you to do. And then you become upset, you become jaded, you become angry when God doesn't behave or respond in the expected way that you have desired for him to move. I go through this at least in some regard every four years. Every four years after November, uh, the, the first Tuesday in November, I go through this same message. I have to talk to a body of people, at least half, who are disappointed in some way. They, they can't believe that God didn't move in this way. Because we've prayed and we've expected God to bend and bow to exactly what we want, regardless of what his will is. We want him to move the way we want him to move. And because of this, many people have become frustrated. Because of this, many have considered God as impotent and incapable of moving and power in their lives or in their situations or situations in the world. And they can't understand why God hasn't bowed himself to their whim. And as a result, their faith is shipwrecked. But I want to tell you today, church, that the unstoppable church gives priority to God's agenda. The unstoppable church is going to give priority to God's agenda. You know, through the years, I, I've encountered some well-meaning, faithful Christian people that approach me 
and in conversation begin to share their thoughts about certain things. And surprisingly, after decades of church attendance and being subject to Bible studies and sermons and songs, their minds have yet to conform to the principles of God's kingdom. Moreover, their minds are set in tradition, in preference, or some of the criteria as suggested by the influence of society, but not as informed by the word of the Lord. You know when, when Paul writes to the Romans church, Roman church and he says, uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Did you know that what Paul is actually talking about is that you and I would get into this word and through prayer and study and the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we would begin to align our hearts, our thoughts, and our lives to kingdom principles. And we would begin to walk and order our lives not according to popular opinion, not according to what we thought about it, but according rather to what God has said about it. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Jesus says, and he begins to expound to us kingdom principle. You've understood it one way, but that's not the way it is in the kingdom. And church, we've got to get to a place where our hearts, our minds, and especially as the day of the Lord's coming hastens, we've got to get more at a place where our minds are in line and in tune with God's will and with kingdom principle and with the, and with the agenda of heaven than it is with our own point of view. God, change us. Give us the eyes of heaven. Now, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 31, says this. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And then our key verse today is verse 33 that says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, now, here's what I believe that the prosperity gospel and the consumeristic mentality of our day has done to our view of the things of the Lord. As human beings, the prosperity message has made it hard for us to take our eyes off the natural aspects of this verse. It has it exaggerated the focus on the natural man, and we love the B part of this verse, where it says... And all these things will be added to you. We're very interested in the things. The emphasis of the verse, however, is of this passage in its larger context, is that those things, the things, are not for you to worry about. They're God's business, and if you'll handle God's business, God will take care of your business. He has committed himself. He has committed himself. I'm, I'm about to alleviate somebody of a lot of worry and anxiety here in this house this morning or those that are watching online today. I'm about to release you from a ton of burden. 
and tell you that the God of heaven who spoke this world into existence, who knit you together in your mother's womb, who saw you from eternity past and loved you and has provided for you in grace, that very God has committed himself that if you will walk and order your life in accordance with his word and his righteousness that you will never be forsaken nor seen begging bread but he's going to take care of you and the encouragement of this verse is not to instruct us in a get rich quick scheme or a if then scenario if you do this you'll get that but rather to point out to us that the priority of our lives needs to be the chasing after the things of God and not the things of this world because God has committed himself to giving us the things that we need for this natural life. Now, here, when I say natural, I, I want to be clear here because I'm not specifically talking about material. We hear... We hear all these talks against materialism, and, and there's nothing wrong. We've, we've spent weeks now talking about Abraham, Isaac, and, and all these people holding them up as shining examples of faith. Very prosperous people in the material sense. Nothing at all wrong with that success and, and excelling and succeeding as long as it doesn't become a God because I believe that God's people ought to be a prosperous people. I really believe that. I believe there's a grace and a favor that God reigns in certain lives, that they are very blessed and blessed in abundance, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we focus so much on that, and, and although material items are mentioned in this verse, it's the natural aspect of life expressed in material needs. And the reason I make that distinction this morning is because there are a lot of believers who are not at all given to materialism and they lose sight of this principle that's being conveyed in the verse and still have a hard time yielding their natural man to spiritual truths. In our world, where every other commercial is an advertisement for lottery tickets or the latest get-rich-quick scheme, many people look here at verse 33 and feel like this is being offered to us simply as some equation to natural blessing. It's, it's that if-then scenario I spoke of earlier. We may get it in our minds somehow or another that what Jesus is saying here is that he's offering service to God as a means to an end of having our own natural desires fulfilled. And that's not what Jesus is recommending at all. We are, we're so completely enthralled as humans with that B part of the verse. We're so prone to be driven by our own desires that, that we'll often see service to God as that means to our own desired end. And sometimes in that, when things don't work out as we've supposed that they should, if that's our focus, you know, sometimes we feel like for certain that God has bound himself to our, our way and bound himself to operating according to the way I thought things should be just because I've served him. And sometimes then when things don't work out as we've supposed that they should, we become indignant towards God and we start listing our own merits as if somehow they put us in better standing and somehow God owes us to operate according to our desires. Now don't get me wrong, understand this, kingdom principle here, obedience is rewarded. You understand that? Obedience is rewarded. It's clear in scripture that God 
rewards obedient people, but obedience never becomes the leverage by which we can exalt our will above God's. It never becomes that, that bargaining chip that we throw on the table before God and say, well, God, I've done this and now you owe me. No, you don't understand. By the purchase price of the blood of Jesus Christ and your acceptance of the free gift of grace, you're no longer your own, but you've been bought with a price. You're his. He doesn't owe you anything. He has ransomed and redeemed your wretched soul from hell, and that's, that's it. He didn't owe us that, but he did. He's shown us mercy. He's extended grace. And, and it's not uncommon for us to focus on the natural or the material side of things. In fact, Jesus says to, to the disciples that day, after all these things the Gentiles seek. He says, common. And, and he's, he's not pointing that out to say, oh, you know, because sometimes we get it in our minds and we're like, well, I am the way I am, and if God intended for me to be any different, God would have made me different. No. There's, it's clear in the word that the Holy Spirit is working in your life to try to build in you and lead you towards Christ's likeness, which is far different, I can tell you, than who I am on my own. It's a lot different than who you are on your own. And, and that's the work of the Spirit in us. But sometimes we, we say, you know, I, I am what I am. I'm just flesh and bone, right? Well, Jesus is pointing a distinction here to say, listen, the, the unbelievers seek after all these things, but your life is to be different. You're, you're to prioritize your life around kingdom principles, and while they're out there running themselves ragged, scraping and scratching just to get by, you're going to take care of my business, and I'm going to take care of yours. That's the difference in your life between those. And this word in, in, in Matthew 6, 33, it's a word of priority. Jesus tells us that there's something that needs to be prioritized in our lives, uh, something that needs to take first place. Now, to establish that priority, I want to remind you of a couple of verses here. In Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8, the Lord speaks through the prophet Isaiah and says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And oftentimes our faith is in peril because we can't get over what we thought something was supposed to be. How I many of you, just be honest this morning, how many of you have ever approached a situation with such ardent expectations of the way something was supposed to be, and you prayed and you cried out to God, and it didn't turn out the way that you expected. It just, it didn't work that way. Does that mean that God has failed? No, it doesn't mean that God has failed. It simply means maybe we weren't asking in accordance with His will. Maybe we weren't aligned with kingdom principle as we were praying. I know there are times when we're talking about, uh, you know, how we believe things ought to be, and we'll even declare that it's, it's what the Lord would want too. You ever, anybody just in good faith, you've assigned the Lord's blessing to what you wanted? 
just said, just said to God, I know this is what God wants for me. You can't find it in Scripture anywhere, but you know that's what God wants for you. <laughs> and I know there are some times that we're standing up and we're making our proclamations about what the Lord wants and what the Lord wants, and I know that uh, God just wants to speak to us the way he did to Job in Job 38 too. and I'm going to read from the CEV this morning because it's so clear. God spoke to Job and said, Why do you talk so much when you know so little? I know there are some times when we're wringing our hands and things aren't working out the way that we plan for them to, that, that we're telling God, you know, what's going wrong and why his plan isn't coming to fruition and we don't understand. And I know God just wants to look at us and say, why do you talk so much when you know so little? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where, where were you when I set the boundaries of the ocean? Upon what cornerstone does my creation rest? Do you know? No, you don't know. Because you weren't there. You don't know the order, the cadence, the rhythms that I put in creation that run like clockwork day and night and night and day continually until I tell them to change. And too often in, in the body of Christ, we're like the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus comes up and he starts talking to this woman, John chapter 4, if you want to read this later. And, and Jesus begins to tell her about this life-giving water. And he, he's telling her about this wonderful miracle that she can receive from him. And she's very interested. She is ready for a miracle. And Jesus says to her, you can have your miracle, but first let's talk about your mess. You remember that? Jesus comes in. She said, hey, he begins talking about life-giving water. She said, hey, give me, give me that water. I'm ready to drink. And Jesus says, okay, go get your husband. She said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, I know you don't have a husband. And, you know, you've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. In other words, Jesus says, I, I want to give you your miracle, but come on here, let's align you with kingdom principle. Let's, let's align you with the principle of the word. Let's get your life in line with truth, and let's have you you know, heal from the, the years of rejection and abuse through relationship after relationship after relationship and get your life restored to kingdom principle so you don't have to keep filling that void of rejection with man after man after man. You can fill it up with God. And he began to talk to her about kingdom principle and when he begins to talk about kingdom principle, she changes the subject. And she says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, and our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. In other words, she says to Jesus, Jesus is talking to her about kingdom principle. Uh, Y'all ain't ready for this. Black and white and red, Jesus is talking to her about thus says the Lord. And she changes the subject. She's there. She's ready for the blessing. She says, Lord, pour it out on me. And Jesus said, okay, let's line up with the truth. And she changes the subject. And do you know what she basically asked Jesus? She asked Jesus for his opinion. Some people say we're to worship over here, and some people say that we're to worship over there. Now, Jesus, what's your opinion? And I'm telling you something, church, it is time for opinions to perish in the body of Christ and there be a solid stance taken on the truth that unifies the body of Christ and no longer brings separation among God's people. 
And, and he, says, he says, listen, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place to, that we ought to worship, and otherwise, Jesus, what's your opinion? Now, did you know that everybody, listen to me, I'm going to help you here. Everybody who calls on the name of Christ has an opinion. Okay? Everybody who calls on the name of Christ has an opinion. And now, did you further know that it might not be the same as yours? <gasps> well, pastor, if they were a Christian, how many of you have heard that? I don't know how they can call themselves serving the Lord and have that opinion. Well, listen, that's not your call to make. As Jesus said to Peter when he's looking over his shoulder at John and saying, Lord, what is he going to do? Jesus kindly says to Peter, that's none of your business. But everybody that calls on the name of the Lord has an opinion, and it may not be the same as yours, but did you further know that just because you both hold your opinion in the name of Christ, it doesn't necessarily make one more right than the other? It's an opinion. And the only thing that makes one right is if it's aligned with the truth of God's word, then it's not an opinion, it's truth. And Jesus said, you don't understand. This is not about opinions. And he said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem because you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. And I've got to tell you today, church, and I'm, I'm taking a little different tone today because I want you to hear what I'm saying and I want you to understand this with the greatest of clarity. There are a lot of people who claim the title of Christian who are in the same boat as this lady. They're more concerned about their own opinions and the opinions of other people than they are about the truth of the word the truth of the kingdom. They're worshiping something that they don't even know about. They're claiming a set of preferences in the name of Christ, but there's nothing of kingdom value about it. And Jesus says, but the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers are going to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him, and God is spirit, and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Not, not come and hold our feeble opinions and ideals up and say, God, would you bless this and make it this way, but rather to come to him and say, God, you know what, I am, I am clay before you. I don't claim to know all the ins and outs of this, but God, I know that you are sovereign. I know that your wisdom is infinite, and I'm going to trust you every step of the way. Though earth may hinder and hell may rage, I'm going to hang on to your unchanging word because I know that it will see me through the darkest valley. I know that it will help me endure the weeping that the night season brings, and as surely as dawn breaks with a new day, joy will come to my life if I'll hang on to your word. And as our brother Daniel says, that's a good place to say amen. This Matthew 6, 33, it's also a word of focus. 
because too often our, we build our faith of the inferior and brittle material that is, born, that is a thought born of our own human reasoning and wisdom. The only way that we can see that God has a chance to move is in this certain way. And, and if, if this leader's not elected, then all is lost. If this set of circumstances doesn't line up this way, then there's no chance. If, if this person doesn't do this thing or act this way or make this decision, then the door is shut for God to do a miracle and all hope is lost. And sadly, our thoughts on certain matters don't reflect the values of the kingdom and our thoughts don't align with what God has spoken and they're not according to the prophecy that has been given us and our question needs to turn from what was I expecting God to do rather than to say, God, what are you up to in this situation? Show me, Lord, what I'm not seeing and help me understand the ways of the kingdom. We have a tendency sometimes to get on our soapboxes and in the name of Jesus we'll shout to the top of our lungs regarding things that stoke our passions and, and we don't assign kingdom, there's the thing, we don't get to assign kingdom value to things that are contrary to the word of the Lord. We, we don't get to assign a higher value to things than God has assigned to those things. But we often do. And when we do, this is the brittle material that can't stand the external forces, the icebergs of disappointment and disillusionment that come in our lives as we're traversing the seas of life, and they shipwreck the faith. And our faith becomes shipwrecked because sometimes we focus more on the wisdom of men and the wishes and the desires of our own heart than we do upon God's wisdom and will. Peter wrote to us in 1 Peter chapter 2 these words. He says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. And today, church, in this hour of living that we're in, I don't believe there's any greater example for us to follow than the example that Jesus set for us in Gethsemane. As he was there and he began to pray, this example of Jesus serves as a great example of how to give priority to God's agenda. Because crucifixion clearly was not Jesus' preferred method. In fact, how does the prayer start? Father, if there's any other way, then let this cup pass from me. It's okay for you to have a preferred outcome of events. That's quite natural. I mean, we're not droids or robots or something that just, you know, we don't have any thoughts about the situation of our own. But the key is that our thoughts always be subject to his. And our will always be subject to his. And our wants always be subject to his. And Jesus prayed, Father, if there's any other way, if you'd like a suggestion, I've got a few recommendations I could make here. 
to work out the redemptive plan. And if there's any other way, I'm right here. I'm your guy. But then he says this, nevertheless, nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And I have a sneaking suspicion that there are those in the body of Christ today who are hanging on to past hurts and disappointments. Because though you came suggestive to the Lord and saying, God, you know, I, I'd, I'd really like for it to happen this way. I'd, I'd like for the check to show up in the mail that's going to cover all my past mistakes. But maybe, maybe what God's trying to do is grow you into stewardship, which is a kingdom principle. Maybe you've prayed and said, God, I, I want you to change my spouse to look exactly so. And as yet, God hadn't moved in that direction because while all you can focus on are the problems in your spouse, God's trying to fix a problem in your own heart and life. Maybe he's trying to develop you in patience or in understanding, being able to see the world from somebody else's point of view for just a few seconds. And we get all worked up and we get tore up because God didn't move the way we expected him to or the way we had anticipated that he would or the way specifically that we asked for it. I've got to tell you, if I'm not careful, and I, I, I stand here with an indict, indictment against myself, if I'm not careful, I can find myself more often instructing God in what needs to be done than looking to receive instruction from God as to what I should do. I've got to be real careful in treading that because I have a lot of good ideas. And I feel like they're the best idea. And if God would just do exactly what I want him to do, it would make me very happy. And I can come with the suggestion, but by the end of the prayer, I have to resolve. And I have to come back to that spot like Job and say, even if he slays me, I'm still going to serve him. Even if things don't work out the way I thought they should, I'm still going to serve him. I'm still going to keep the faith. And nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, let this thing work out from heaven's point of view. Now, Jesus didn't pretend to know more about it than his heavenly father. He wasn't perturbed that God didn't amend his plans to accommodate Jesus' desires. No, he, he willfully submitted himself to the plans of God and said, not my will, but yours be done. And honestly, I want to ask you, honestly, when's the last time you looked at a situation about which you were passionate and you prayed as Jesus taught us? Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, don't let my opinion of it skew my view of it, but help me see through your eyes. And listen, church, the priority of Jesus' death and resurrection, and here's, here's, the, here's the money shot, and I always got to come back to it because I believe that the church is in existence in this hour for a very specific purpose. 
And it's this, the priority of Jesus' death and resurrection was the salvation of the lost. You agree with that? That the priority of Jesus' death and resurrection was the salvation of the lost and the reconciliation of broken fellowship between the Creator and His creation. And honestly, we're usually more passionate about things that pertain to our own comforts and our own security than we are whether or not a lost soul gets saved. Church, we're not here to win arguments. We're here to win souls. We're not here to change the minds of people to match our opinions of the way we think things ought to be. While, and sometimes while we're so busy striving against God's uh, God in order to have him see it our way, he's working to have some lost soul see the way. And sometimes we can't get out of the way. We didn't help God figure out the cadence of this world and how it turns, and we didn't help him determine any of the parameters of his creation, yet he holds the whole thing in his hands. And ours, today, ours in this, in this era of life, ours is to work in aligning ourselves with his will, not trying to manipulate him to accommodate ours, because that is an inferior construction and when you strike the icebergs of life, and you will, you'll take on water to the detriment of your faith. But the unstoppable church will be about the Father's business. Otherwise, we'll be disillusioned by a faith that is built upon our own expectations instead of God's word for our lives, and we too will become shipwrecked. And sincerely, sincerely, I want to challenge you to ask God every day, God, what do you want from me today? What is the work that you'd have me concern myself with in this moment of life because I trust your word, Matthew 6, that if I take care of your business, you'll take care of mine. And I'm going to trust you, Lord. And I'm going to surrender to your will. And I'm going to align myself with your word. And I'm going to align myself with the principles of your kingdom. And I'm going to ride on the old ship of Zion. And I will not be shaken. I will not be perturbed. I will not be undone every time life strikes a blow of adversity. But I'll stand in good faith knowing that you're working all things together for my good. We hope you enjoyed this inspirational message today. If you would like more information about Faith Assembly, please visit us on the web at faith-assembly.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you have a blessed day.